Native American tribes across the country are reeling in the aftermath of a recent ruling from the Supreme Court. All across Indian country, we, we all felt the pain of that decision. We all felt the pain of what that might mean for our collective futures. That was Fawn Sharp. She's president of the National Congress of American Indians. She's talking about the court's decision in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta. States now have the authority to prosecute crimes perpetrated by non-Indians within Native land. Here's Oklahoma's Republican governor, Kevin Stitt. As the governor, my job is to protect law and order and enforce justice for Native victims and all 4 million Oklahomans. So to me, the question really is, why are the tribes fighting and why is the federal government fighting the state of Oklahoma to have concurrent jurisdiction and to be able to prosecute these crimes. We'll hear from two legal voices on the ground in Oklahoma, one who supports the decision and one who opposes it. But first, we get more details on the ruling and what it means for tribal sovereignty. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember to have your questions answered for future shows, or just to let us know what you think, tweet us at 1A. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us today is Rebecca Nagel. Rebecca is a journalist who's a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. She's also the host of the podcast, This Land. Rebecca, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Rebecca, explain in more detail what the Supreme Court decided in Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta. Absolutely. So criminal jurisdiction on tribal land is complicated. Before this decision, states had jurisdiction on reservations for any crimes that just involved non-Native people. So if it was a victimless crime and the defendant is non-Native, or if it was a crime committed by a non-Native person on a non-Native person. Before the Castro decision, if the victim of the crime was Native and the defendant was non-Native, the crime could either be prosecuted by tribes um, under the Violence Against Women Act or for cases that aren't covered by that act by the federal government. Um, What the Supreme Court did in a decision that's pretty sweeping um, and doesn't just apply to Oklahoma, but applies to over 300 reservations across the United States, was shift that to say that there's concurrent jurisdiction over crimes where the defendant is non-Native and the victim is Native. Now, this Supreme Court ruling follows a landmark 2020 ruling referred to as McGirt. What did that decision do? Um, So in the 2020 McGirt decision, the Supreme Court ruled that Congress had never disestablished or gotten rid of the reservation of Muscogee Creek Nation. Um, You know, Oklahoma, since its inception and statehood, had acted as if um, the reservations within its boundaries had just magically ceased to exist. But states actually don't have say over whether or not tribes have reservations. That's solely the role of Congress. And what the Supreme Court found in 2020 was that Congress had actually never abolished the reservation of Muscogee Creek Nation. What followed that 2020 decision were subsequent decisions in state court that upheld other reservations in Oklahoma based on the Supreme Court's ruling. And so as a result, the reservations of actually six tribes um, in Oklahoma, including my own tribe, Cherokee Nation, have been affirmed. So how does a court's most recent ruling blunt the effect of McGirt? 
So the reservations are still recognized under law, and it's this very um, narrow subset of crimes that there will now be concurrent jurisdiction between the state of Oklahoma, the feds, and in some cases, also the tribes. Um, you know, Oklahoma's rhetoric was, you know, this is good for um, native victims of crime. You know, the Supreme Court echoed that rhetoric, you know, more people prosecuting crimes is even better. Um, but we actually already have an example from other states of what happens when there's concurrent jurisdiction. And what happens is that um, everybody passes the buck and those crimes go unprosecuted. Um, so Congress actually passed a law called PL-280, where states could opt in to having concurrent jurisdiction. A handful of states did. Um, and the policy was so disastrous that Congress actually reversed it. And so now PL-280 can only be enacted with um, the tribe's consent or the consent of tribal citizens. Um, and so, you know, we have yet to see how this will play out on the ground. But the examples we have from other places in the country where there is concurrent jurisdiction have not been positive. Now, this ruling, again, is about prosecutorial jurisdiction, but it also has larger implications for tribal sovereignty. Justice Brett Kavanaugh wrote in the majority opinion, quote, Indian country is part of the state, not separate from the state, end quote. What is the significance of that statement, Rebecca? It's huge. <laughs> um, you know, we'll have to see if the Supreme Court follows that reasoning in subsequent decisions. Um, and if it does, it could be a sea change in the rights and the powers of indigenous nations here in the United States. You know, I mean, going back for my tribe, going back to um, removal to where, you know, the Trail of Tears um, actually started with the state of Georgia terrorizing its, our citizens through unconstitutional um, means through the creation of Oklahoma, we have had a long history of being at tension with the states, and it's been the role of the federal government to protect indigenous nations. And Brett Kavanaugh, Kavanaugh seems to think that that should go away, you know? And, and it's scary because it's not what Oklahoma asked the Supreme Court to do. Oklahoma asked the Supreme Court to interpret this law from the 1800s and to come up with this kind of novel interpretation of it. And instead, you know, like with the quote that you said, um, the majority wrote this sweeping opinion that really restate, resets the relationship between states and indigenous nations. And, you know, instead of citing some laws, he went all the way back to the Tenth Amendment. Um, and I think really people who are concerned about the implications of that need to look at a case that's coming up next term. It's called, uh, a lot of people call it the Brackeen case or Brackeen v. Holland. Um, but it's a case where the plaintiffs and the states who are bringing that case are explicitly asking the Supreme Court to rewrite some fundamental principles of federal Indian law and really the legal structure defending the rights of indigenous nations. And if the Supreme Court takes the same swipe at those um, legal principles that it did in the Castro decision, it could be really devastating um, for indigenous nations here, here in our country. Rebecca, I think it would be helpful to, to learn 
and understand a little bit more about the history of Indian law that this case builds upon. Can you give us a bit of that context? Yeah, and and actually, if you know, folks really want to understand it, Gorsuch's decision um, is a great lesson. You know, he he actually starts by talking about. Uh, you mean Gorsuch's Mr. dissent? I just want to be dissent. Yeah. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> thank you. Yeah, um, yeah. So he gives an excellent overview. Um, there was actually a period of time you know, between the Declaration of Independence and the writing of the Constitution that states had the authority to treat with tribes and to have relationships with tribes. And it was a disaster. And so the founders were actually really intentional when they wrote the Constitution um, to reserve the power to treat with tribes and make treaties with tribes to the federal government. So just like, you know, the state of Oklahoma can't make a deal with a foreign power, can't, you know, make a trade relationship with Canada or Mexico, Oklahoma as a state can't renegotiate the nation-to-nation relationship between Cherokee Nation and the United States government. And one of the fundamental Supreme Court decisions that um, really codified that relationship between the states and indigenous nations, that was really a government-to-government, nation-to-nation relationship between indigenous nations and the federal government, is called Wooster v. Georgia. And it came from this period of time before the Trail of Tears, before our removal, where to force us to agree to removal, the state of Georgia was terrorizing Cherokee citizens. Um, And part of that terrorism was arresting um, all missionaries, all white missionaries that were um, working within Cherokee Nation. And one of those missionaries' cases went all the way to the Supreme Court. And in that decision, the court said that Georgia does not have the authority um, to enforce its laws within Cherokee Nation. The Supreme Court decision was famously not followed by the Jackson administration or by Georgia. Um, And what followed is actually a chapter of genocide and ethnic cleansing in U.S. history. Um, But that court decision is still considered one of the bedrock decisions of federal Indian law. And and one of the other extreme moments in um, the majority opinion was that they said that this bedrock Supreme Court decision had actually been overruled. So even though, you know, constitutional law professors and everybody who learned about this case in law school weren't taught that it had become bad law by the end of the 1800s, that's that's where the majority opinion landed. And so um, it, it's a fundamental principle of federal Indian law that um, it is a nation-to-nation relationship established through treaties, through the same constitutional process that our government ratifies treaties with foreign nations, and and this decision um, didn't recognize that. Well, Justice Neil Gorsuch also wrote in his dissent that, quote, truly a more ahistorical and mistaken statement of Indian law would be hard to fathom. And let's bring two new voices into the conversation. They're on the ground dealing with the direct impact of the decision. Steve Kunzweiler is the district attorney for Tulsa County, Oklahoma. District Attorney Kunzweiler, welcome to the program. Thank you very much for having me on. Also with us is Sarah Hill, the Attorney General for the Cherokee Nation. Attorney General Hill, welcome to 1A. It's a pleasure. Thank you. DA Kunzweiler, you agree with the court's decision here. Explain why. Well, I sure do. I think Oklahoma is unique when it comes to uh, how we approach the creation of our state back in 1907. Uh, Unlike any other state in the country, 
uh, we ha actively had uh, a lot of uh, representation by the tribes in the formation of our constitution. And literally since statehood, state court prosecutors were handling cases that involved every uh, variation of crime that you could imagine, uh, murders, rapes, robberies, burglaries, uh, automobile uh, uh, theft. And the, uh, the impact of that McGirt decision essentially uh, put into what I, I frequently refer to as a chaotic circumstance for uh, victims, especially in the Indian victims. And obviously that put a lot of pressure on uh, uh, the tribes, certainly uh, uh, A.G. Uh, uh, Sarah, she, she had to deal with a lot of things that the tribes had not historically been dealing with because state court prosecutors were handling it. So for the better part of the last two years, uh, it's been very difficult. Uh, the Castro Huerta case actually came out of my jurisdiction, involved an illegal uh, Hispanic who had victimized a five-year-old child. She, when law enforcement came into their home, uh, she was 19 pounds. It was a case of horrific neglect. And in essence, what he argued was because she was an Indian child, the state had no jurisdiction to prosecute him for the horrific abuse that he and the mother of the child inflicted on this poor baby. And I think uh, what Castro Huerta did was recognize that the state does have concurrent jurisdiction to handle these kind of cases. A.G. Hill, I want to hear from you first. I think it's important to point out that uh, Castro Huerta was prosecuted under federal law, if I'm not mistaken. But A.G. Hill, you, you think the Supreme Court made the wrong decision in this case. Explain why. Well, I think the the court, um, you know, got the got the law wrong. I mean, there's uh, federal Indian law has has a lot of deep roots and it balances a lot of important things that have gone back to the founding of this country, a different interests. And um, it was very disappointing to see the court basically jettison all of those years of um, a federal Indian law in favor of what I see as a very results-oriented sort of approach that the, the court decided to take, sort of searching around for any sort of scrap of authority it could find to to find a way to, to make the decision that it wanted to make. And I think a lot of that had to do with the sort of overblown sense that uh, that everything was coming apart at the seams in Oklahoma. We saw a lot of that kind of rhetoric from the governor's office um, in Oklahoma, and really sort of, you know, trying to paint a picture that, that, that everything, you know, in Oklahoma was going terribly. When in reality, you know, uh, certainly, you know, as, uh, as D.A. Kunzweiler noted, a uh, few, few people were more busy um, in the wake of McGirth than the Cherokee Nation was in terms of increasing the size and capacity of our justice systems. But that process was going well, and it wasn't as if the tribes had never had such a presence before. The tribes had, for, for decades, uh, been involved in criminal justice. So it really was a question of adding capacity, uh, not, not a question of building an entirely new system. And as, the, as that system has grown and gotten more effective, we saw that you know, maybe the, the sky wasn't falling after all. It, it absolutely hasn't been chaos in eastern Oklahoma, uh, but that, that was not the narrative, I think, that got to the court, um, and it's the, the decision of the court was not really the dis disciplined deep dive into federal Indian law that one would expect. Um, instead, it was something far different from that, as Gorsuch indicates in his dissent. Uh, Rebecca, just correct me if I'm incorrect here. The Castro Huerta was prosecuted for this crime under federal law? 
Yeah, he um, he took a plea, um, a plea bargain, and had been already convicted in federal court at the time the Supreme Court heard this case. And I wanted to just hop in real quick and talk about Oklahoma's claims about chaos and crimes going unprosecuted. Um, I worked with a reporter named Allison Herrera to really dig into Oklahoma's data claims and factual claims, and we found that the numbers didn't add up at all. Um, And so I just want to share a couple things that Oklahoma claimed in front of the Supreme Court. One thing that they said is that 76,000 past convictions could be overturned. And they also claimed that district attorneys um, provided them with that number. When we reached out to district attorneys, including uh, Kunzweiler's office, um, they actually said that they had never provided the governor with that data. And so we still don't know where this number came from. We got numbers from the Department of Corrections, and we found that the real numbers were that about 123 people had been released to federal or tribal custody after 18 months, and only 68 people had been released to the street. So not even close to 76,000. David emailed, it seems to me the extreme right-wing justices know the outcome they want, then root around for plausible justification of their extreme decision. In every important case so far, the ruling has been exactly as predicted or worse. We're discussing the recent Supreme Court ruling on state power over tribal lands. We'll be back with more in just a moment. A reminder, you can be part of future conversations. Just download the 1A Vox Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get back to the conversation with this message from Betty. Betty asks this, since the jurisdiction change, in what ways has Oklahoma been working hand in hand with the tribes to ensure that horrific crimes like Castro Huerta's are quickly adjudicated? Is there a cooperative framework to make the handoff swift and seamless? A.G. Hill, how do you work with the state at this point? So we have a long and really productive relationship with local law enforcement. Um, The Cherokee Nation has, you know, hundreds of cross-deputization agreements with local law enforcement agencies. And these agreements make it where local police officers don't have to worry about whether or not the the person who's committed the crime or the victim in the crime is an Indian or a non-Indian. They can just simply make the arrest and then the prosecutors can work with the law enforcement after the fact to sort out where this where this case will be filed and who has jurisdiction. And that really has been, you know, one of the the ways that we have worked together to try to improve law enforcement has been through things like the cross-step agreements that we have with local law enforcement. Uh, many of the municipalities inside the Cherokee Nation have entered into um, fee splitting arrangements with the tribe so that if an arrest is made in a municipality in a small town, um, you know, some of the fine that's collected by the Cherokee Nation is shared back with local law enforcement who made the arrest. So, I mean, this is very much par for the course in in rural Oklahoma. I don't know if people who don't live here can appreciate how integrated tribal governance is into all of the reservation. Tribes, you know, build bridges, build roads, and have provided support for local law enforcement for decades. This is this is the way it's always operated. And so there's lots of opportunities for the tribes in the state to work together, and we do work together, um, you know, with the notable exception that our, our current governor seems much less interested in into those sorts of cooperative agreements than, than previous governors of Oklahoma have been. So how will Oklahoma v. Castro Huerta affect the way you work cross-jurisdiction? I mean, that's a great question. I think um, part of that is 
you know, time will tell to some extent. It doesn't affect the day-to-day jurisdiction of the nation. So it doesn't change the number of cases in tribal court or the prosecutions that we have going on in the Cherokee Nation because it doesn't change jurisdiction over Indians. And that is most of our jurisdiction is exerted over Indians. We do exert jurisdiction over non-Indians who commit certain domestic violence crimes on the on the reservation. So we basically will continue the way we continued before Castro Huerta. I think the question, and this is something that Rebecca alluded to earlier, the question is, does increasing state jurisdiction increase safety on a reservation, or does increasing state jurisdiction hinder safety on a reservation? And uh, people like uh, Professor Carol Goldberg um, in uh, California have done a lot of uh, done a lot of work in public law 280 states where there has been expanded state jurisdiction, and um, the data has tended to indicate that it doesn't make reservations safer when state jurisdiction is expanded. What tends to increase safety on a reservation is increasing tribal jurisdiction, the way that we have seen with the VAWA expansions. Um, and I think that that's something that we, you know, if we look to the data, we can see that. Now, that doesn't mean that the state doesn't have an opportunity here to really demonstrate its capacity to make Indian country safer. And I hope that that's the case because this is my home and this is the work that we collectively have to do with the state and with the federal government. Uh, D.A. Kunzweiler, I-, I would love to hear you respond to A.G. Hill's concerns. Well, I, I go back to where things were pre-McGirt. Uh, the state prosecutors on the eastern half of this state always handled those cases. Uh, I would point out that uh, the federal government is the uh, prosecuting authority for major crimes, so that the tribes, in, in most respects, would not be handling murders, rapes, robberies, child abuse type cases. Uh, the federal government did. And one of the things we did was immediately after the McGirt decision, we we wanted to see where the cases that we were already prosecuting, what was happening with those prosecutions and the study that we commissioned with the assistance of the Bureau of Justice. Bureau of Justice assistance came back with some just shocking statistics. It's even cited in the uh, Supreme Court Castro Huerta case. Uh, Justice uh, Kavanaugh points out that the U.S. Department of Justice was only opening up 22% in the Eastern District of Oklahoma and 31% in the Northern District of Oklahoma, cases that had been referred by DA's offices that we had traditionally filed and prosecuted. Just alarming when you would think that maybe 75% of all cases that were being previously prosecuted by state prosecutors were not even being opened up. And so that's, I think, where the, the, the focus of Castro Huerta was, is should states be allowed, or in this particular case, what we're talking about, this decision is limited to Oklahoma, is should the state of Oklahoma be able to exercise what it had traditionally exercised since 1907, concurrent jurisdiction? And I think we did an excellent job in that. And I certainly want to allay any concerns that Rebecca or A.G. Hill have that we're going to continue to do the things we historically always did and very aggressively prosecute. For me, I don't care about uh, the color of skin, the the sex, the creed, the color of anybody. Uh, My focus is to make sure that victims who are being victimized are being protected. And so for me, I want to get the bad guys off the street and we'll continue to cooperate with our partners, both federal and tribe, to make sure that we jointly get that done. A.G. Hill, in your experience, has the federal government been responsive enough to these crimes? The federal government has really been extremely responsive. And I really I think that the 
statistics that are being talked about here are only telling one side of a larger story. And the other side of that story is when those were uh, referred to the United States, maybe they didn't prosecute them, but many of those cases were referred to the tribes. Um, the five tribes in eastern Oklahoma, which includes the Cherokee Nation, are all large and sophisticated tribes and had created large and sophisticated criminal justice systems that were capable of accepting many cases that were, uh, you know, these are not just misdemeanor cases that are handled in the tribal courts, but very serious cases up to and including manslaughter cases in some circumstances. Um, and so I think that not that they're perfect. Certainly, you know, the United States needed more resources. The federal courts, the U.S. attorney's offices uh, needed more resources in Oklahoma. And I hope that they continue to get them because we are still um, dependent upon them in a lot of respects. Um, so it's my hope that they continue to get them. But I, I do not feel like anyone in the northern district um, of Oklahoma where uh, D.A. Kunzweiler works, that anyone over there took this anything less than absolutely deadly serious or, or were providing anything less than uh, than their best efforts on all of these cases. Rebecca, we're getting some specific questions about the implications of this decision. Miriam emails, hypothetically, how will the decision concerning states' authority over reservations affect historic disparities and things like state and federal funding and grants, including farm loans and subsidies? And we know it's it's still very early uh, after the decision, but is there any indication of of how that might affect some of these issues? Absolutely. I wanted to address the data real quick. Sure. Um, so Oklahoma, in its briefs, and this was cited in the decision, um, said that they lost jurisdiction over 18,000 cases a year and alluded that 10,000 cases were going unprosecuted. We looked for how much um, Oklahoma prosecutions in eastern Oklahoma had declined in the years that the reservations were affirmed and found that they declined actually by 13,000. And then we looked at how much the feds and the tribes increased their prosecutions. And we found that the gap was less than 1,000 cases, um, which even when we talked to District Attorney um, Kunzweiler, a lot of that decline may have been because of COVID. And when you look at the numbers, while the feds did increase how many cases they were prosecuting, the overwhelming majority of the increase came from the tribes. Since their reservations were affirmed, the five tribes in eastern Oklahoma have filed more than 11,400 cases. And that in the tribes taking on the majority of the prosecutions actually makes a lot of sense because there are a lot more, you know, DUI cases or drug possession cases than there are murders. And because feds just have jurisdiction over the major crimes, you would expect to see that kind of outcome. And so, you know, Oklahoma citing the cases that the feds aren't prosecuting is really misleading because we can see in the data that the tribes are prosecuting those cases in really high numbers. Um, in terms of the implications, you know, like I said earlier in the program, we are really going to have to see if the majority of the court stays with this idea that, you know, contrary to the Constitution, contrary to centuries of precedent, states have um, inherent authority over tribal land. Right now, the way that this case applies, even though there's a lot of scary language in the decision, the way that it applies is just to this sort of narrow issue of who has jurisdiction over these specific crimes. 
But like I said, there are other cases that are heading to the Supreme Court, that Brackeen case that is making a 10th Amendment states' rights argument and is not only going at um, striking at the relationship between indigenous nations and states, but is even striking at the authority of Congress to pass laws that protect indigenous nations. And so I think if we have a, even a decision that's even similar to the Castro decision in Brackeen, um, it, it could be the unraveling of really, really important constitutional protections for indigenous nations that could have some really devastating effects. So if people are concerned, I, I really strongly recommend that they keep paying attention. Well, let's hear once more from Fawn Sharp. She's president of the National Congress of American Indians. We have been working for centuries, for decades, to ensure that our futures are secure, to ensure that our inherent rights to govern our land, territories, and peoples exclusively belongs to us. And and here we have a decision now where there's three layers of jurisdiction over a single instance. Rebecca, this ruling looks specifically at prosecuting crimes, but it also touches on that much larger question of to what extent the U.S. government recognizes reservations as sovereign nations. We know the Supreme Court is likely to hear more cases on Indian law, including one on the Indian Child Welfare Act. What does the Castro Huerta ruling indicate about future decisions? I think um, if the court if the majority of the court um, stays on this vein, and I would describe that vein as disregarding pieces of the Constitution, disregarding um, previous Supreme Court decisions, disregarding the role of Congress, you know, disregarding really fundamental constitutional principles, I think that we're in a lot of trouble. You know, I think there's a lot of... Um, dialogue right now about the role of the Supreme Court, how far this court is willing to go, and indigenous rights absolutely needs to be part of that conversation. That's Rebecca Nagel. She's a journalist and member of the Cherokee Nation. She's also host of the podcast, This Land. Also with us today, Steve Kunzweiler, the district attorney for Tulsa County, Oklahoma, and Sarah Hill, the attorney general for the Cherokee Nation. Rebecca, Attorney General Hill, DA Kunzweiler, thanks for your time. Today's producer was Avery J.C. Kleinman, and this program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.